Good morning. My name is Danny Beach, and I serve as the equipping pastor here, and it is good to worship together as the body of Christ, isn't it? To be able to come together on a weekly basis and sing these songs to God's glory. So my wife and I have jumped on the bandwagon, and we are members of Costco now. And I've never been a member before, and when I walked in to get my membership, I walked up to the counter, they flashed something shiny at me, and I said, that's a great deal. And now I'm a member of the gold, diamond, platinum, exclusive membership, whatever that is, and I don't think I'll be able to use that, um, whatever all that entitles me to. But we go to Costco now, and we have uh, three daughters, five, three, and one, so they're all quite young, and going to Costco is kind of like a field trip. You can go spend a day, uh, eat some food, get all the taste tester stuff. If you're my daughters and you don't like it, you could spit it out on the floor and they'll come clean it up for you. Um, everything is, is big and packaged in a great form. And Costco has uh, a toy aisle, and all their toys are, are huge. Like the playhouse is life-size. You could rent it out in Mount Pleasant. And big giant teddy bears and the entire cast of Star Wars in one box. None of this collect all ten nonsense from my childhood. But if I, if I walk my daughters through the toy aisle at Costco, I try to do some preemptive work. All right, I have two things that I try to tell my daughters before we go through the toy aisle. I say, we can only touch with one finger. Okay, so none of this pulling it off the shelf and bringing it to me and saying, I want this, I want this, you can only touch with one finger. Uh, the second thing that I try to preemptively tell my daughters is we're not buying any toys today. That's good information because everything that they see, Daddy, I want this, Daddy, I want this. Why can't I have this? And I have to be like, no, 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 Lauren, let's go home. And so we have to try to do this, this work to get through the toy aisle at Costco. And so we get through the entire aisle. It's me and my two older daughters, five and three. And my five-year-old looks at me with kind of a sparkle in her eyes, and she says, Daddy, wouldn't it be great if we could just have this entire aisle of toys? And I think, oh no, I failed as a daddy. But then I think, hey, I read some parenting book and there's some chapter about capturing those God moments, right? You read that book, right, in that chapter? And you know, use this time to talk about the, the good counsel of the, of the word of God. And so I bring my two daughters in to me and I try to get down on their level and I say, hey, listen, it's not bad to have toys. Uh, we're thankful for the toys that we have, and we have a lot of toys in our house. And it's not bad to, to give toys and to get toys as, as gifts. But the Bible tells us that just having more stuff isn't ever really going to make us happy. And, and we're supposed to look to Jesus as the one who can ultimately give us our, our joy. So like, home run, right? Good dad move. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm purveying my counsel and my wisdom and my theology to my daughters. And my three-year-old looks at me with her big brown eyes and her kind of drooping face, and she talks like this all the time. 
And when she's concerned, her voice starts to get a little higher. And she looks at me with just confusion. And she says, but dad, we need more toys. And so it's at that moment that I realize they don't get it. They don't get it. Now, I still believe that it's it's good for me to speak these things to them and to continue to, to speak truth and wisdom and what the Bible has to say about things, but they just don't get it now. And they don't get it now because they're immature and not, not immature in a bad way. They're appropriately immature, meaning they don't have a full understanding of things yet. So they just innocently and kind of rightly don't get it. And whenever we try to seek to share wise counsel and advice to somebody who's younger or less mature than us, and again, I'm saying that in a appropriately less mature, uh, a lot of times with the incomplete understanding of how things work, it just is good counsel and wise and true and right, but just might not really make sense. I think of before I was married, uh, people would come up to me and they would try to give me wise marriage advice for that day, one day when I would become a married man, and they would say things like this, wise counsel, never go to bed angry. And as a single guy, I was like, done, easy. I don't go to bed angry now, and so you know, how, how hard could this be when I get married? And it turns out uh, it's incredibly difficult to <laughs> not go to bed angry, especially after you're already in bed and the covers are up and you're already on your way to sleep and somehow an argument pops up. and like, okay, now I get it. Okay, so I have matured and I know some of these things. I have more of a full understanding of things. Or I think of maybe if you're in my stage of life with little kids, you're walking through the grocery store and somebody has a smelly diaper and other people are smelling it and one of your kids is hitting your hands saying, don't push the shopping cart. And what am I supposed to do? And the other kid is, is yelling at you and there's a little old lady who says, cherish these days. <laughs> like, I, I, I think I hear what you're saying, but I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I'm telling you this because we're going to look at a story in scripture. Luke chapter 9. It's in your bulletin. And I would like for you to either follow along with the text in your bulletin or turn to it in your Bible or Bible app. But we're going to look at a story in the book of Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 37, where Jesus, the master teacher, is giving wise counsel information, valuable information to his disciples. And it's just really not going to make sense to them. So we're in Luke chapter 9. It's about a third of the way through the book of Luke. And let me kind of fill you in on where we're at in the telling of the story of Luke. At this point, Jesus has begun his earthly ministry. He is proclaiming repentance in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is performing miracles to verify and validate that he is who, in fact, he says that he is. And he is raising people from the dead. And he is healing people. And he is casting out demons. But not only that, Jesus has identified and called his 12 disciples already. And he's begun teaching them and showing them the ways of the ministry of the kingdom of God. And he has not only called them to himself and begun teaching them, but he has sent his 12 disciples out with the power of God to proclaim repentance in the kingdom of God and to be able to perform miracles so that people will know that this message is from God. So they went out 
the 12. They went out, and they're doing these great things, and people were responding. And the disciples at this point in the story have come back, and they've shared the good things with Jesus. Like, we got to see these things happen all for the kingdom. At this point in the story, Jesus has already gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, just those three disciples, and they have seen the cloud descend, and they've seen Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah and and the prophecies that become uh, apparent there in that moment. They're, They're a little confused by what's all going on, but Peter, James, and John actually hear the voice of God the Father say, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And right before this text that we're going to look at, Jesus and Peter, James, and John descend off the Mount of Transfiguration and they come upon a situation. They come upon a crowd that is gathered. And that is where we are picking up today. So follow along with me, please. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. It says this, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So we have Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and a crowd has gathered. And we know that from the synoptic gospels that within this crowd are religious authorities, and they're arguing with the remaining disciples that are there. We know that there is a desperate father who has an only son that is possessed by a spirit and it convulses him and he is desperately seeking for him to be healed. It's important to understand here that uh, just as a refresher, okay, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all right, the three uh, gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. And synoptic briefly just means the, the general telling of the whole of a story. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of Jesus, but to a slightly different audience with a slightly different emphasis. So maybe a modern example of a synoptic story would be if I said, I went to the store with my daughters. And then I said, I went to get milk with Evie and Lois. And then I said, yesterday I went to Harris Teeter. Okay, so it's, it's the general telling of the whole of a story but through the whole council of Scripture in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're able to get a, a, a more robust image of what all is going on. And so we see Matthew and Mark also give us details about the story. And so we, we see in Matthew that religious authorities are there and they're arguing with the disciples, perhaps shaming them or mocking them. Disciples, why can't you heal this guy? Who's the name of Jesus that you're proclaiming? To, and why are you now powerless? And the disciples had been sent out, and they had been given power. 
and they had seen great, mighty things, and suddenly they can't do this. And there's this poor guy with a son who's desperate, and they likely really, really want to be able to help this man. And he's begging, Luke says. He's begging the disciples, but they can't help. I think the elephant in the room in this story is, what are the disciples thinking? They're, they're baffled. They're likely shamed. Maybe they just feel like the, the gig is up. Why is the power gone? At, at, at most, we know for sure, because of Matthew and Mark's account, that the disciples came back to Jesus and they said, why can't we heal him? So we know that the disciples are confused. They're questioning what's going on. They don't have answers. What does Jesus do in response to the story? Look at verse 41. This is the first thing Jesus says. He says, O faithless and twisted generation. And then he calls for the boy to come forward. The demon convulses him, throws him on the ground. Jesus rebukes the demon, heals the boy, and then restores him with his father. At this point the crowd kind of goes wild. Because if you look uh, at verse uh, 43, it says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. What's interesting here is is that Jesus is beginning to connect the dots. He begins by saying, oh, faithless and twisted generation, We see that there's a faith problem that Jesus is pronouncing to the crowd and broadly speaking to the generation. We see that there's a faith issue in the disciples because they came back around and said, why can't we do it? And what Jesus says in the book of Mark is he says, you know why? It's your lack of faith. So it's identified. Jesus specifically says, this is a faith problem for you, disciples. And thanks to the synoptics, we see a greater story of the desperate father. The desperate father in Matthew Excuse me, and Mark comes up to Jesus and he says this, if you can, have compassion on my boy. And Jesus replies by saying, if I can, those who believe, nothing will be impossible for them. And the desperate father replies and he says, I I believe, but help my unbelief. Help Help my faithlessness. Help my faith problem. So we see an identification of faithlessness as the theme, as the problem, as the conflict going on in this entire situation. It's in the generation, it's in the crowd, it's in the, it's in the desperate father, and it's even in the disciples that faithlessness is the problem. But don't miss what happens next as the crowds are going wild. Look at verse 43. If you're reading this in your Bible, Verse 43 is cut in half, and there's, a, there's like a story break there. What we see in verse 43 is this. As all were astonished at the majesty of God, and all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. So while people are rejoicing and marveling that Jesus had done this great thing that the disciples could not do, while everybody was rejoicing in that, Jesus grabbed his disciples, pulled them over to the side and said, guys, I, I, we need to, I need to tell you something specific. I need to tell you something very important. This, is, this information is not for the crowd. It says while they're rejoicing, he pulled his disciples. All right, so they're hearing the cheering in the background. He says, let 
this sink into your ears. Now, in a literary understanding of this, this is, this is quite a point at, of, of, of emphasis here. This is a throw the brakes on and listen to this specifically. This is not a, hey, follow along and see what I do and do what I do later in your ministry. This is not a, what you're going to want to do in this type of situation is. This is a drown out everything else, guys, and let this sink into your ears. And what does he say? In verse 44, he says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So that's the information that is supposed to sink into their ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And how do the disciples respond to this information? Verse 45, it says this. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So in one sense, what in the world What in the world? Why, Jesus, would you draw great emphasis to this valuable piece of information and then supernaturally withhold it from their understanding? Um, Amongst all of the stuff that's going on here, why would you proclaim something that I'm supposed to retain and then hide it? And what this verse means is exactly what it sounds like it means. It says it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. It was a supernatural disallowing of the information for them to be, it was intended for them to be in the dark as it pertains to this vital piece of information. So what's happening so far is Jesus has come off the Mount of Transfiguration He finds a crowd, they're arguing, there's a desperate man, there's faithlessness amongst everybody, there's faithlessness with the desperate father, there's faithlessness amongst his closest followers, the 12 disciples. He heals the boy, as they cheer, he pulls the disciples, says this is important, listen to this, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of men, but it won't make any sense to you. Now Jesus... This is where I think the story begins to get exciting because Jesus is the master teacher and he has an intention here. This is not just kind of what happened to come his way that day. Jesus, the all-knowing one, the one who is working to prepare his disciples to take the kingdom forward after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he is, he is using this moment to teach the disciples an incredibly important lesson that they must grasp. And what is that lesson? That lesson is the all-important lesson of faith, of faith. I mean, think about this. He's identified the problem, faithlessness. He's identified the solution. The object of their faith must be Jesus. Their faith drifted to somewhere else and they were no longer able to do these miracles. And they said, why? Jesus said, it's your faithlessness is the problem. You must come back to me, the constant one. You must continue to look to me and trust in me and put your faith in me. The power isn't gone. It's your faith that's the problem. And then he calls them to practice their faith in the dark. He identifies the problem. He identifies himself as the solution. And then he calls them to move forward 
in, in a sense, in darkness. Now, I think it's fair to ask the question. Some, some might ask, was it necessary for this particular bit of information, that the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of men, it was necessary for this to be concealed from the disciples because it seems like that's pretty vital information. It seems like that would have gone a long way throughout the remainder of their ministry leading up to their time in Jerusalem at the crucifixion. It seems like if they would have had that piece to the puzzle, then it would have been a full understanding of the story, right? This is where I think we need to go back to the aisle at Costco because my daughters want everything. They want all the toys. And they're convinced that they have the answers and they're convinced that they need this stuff. But the, the truth of the matter is they have an incomplete understanding of things. They don't understand materialism. They don't understand the deceitfulness of their own heart. And they don't understand that the feeding of the deceitfulness of their own heart can lead to much worse things than just more toys. They don't understand godly stewardship. They don't even understand money. They don't understand economics. They don't understand how things work. And there is a very real calling on my life as a dad to shield them from the things that they cannot yet bear. There's a responsibility for me as a daddy to speak truth, to continue to say the right things, knowing that it will not have a complete comprehension, while still saying, I'm going to bear these burdens for you because you aren't ready yet. One day, Lord willing, you will be, and all will be revealed. But for now, it is my job to bear these burdens to protect you, to shield you from, you, from what you could not shield yourself from. And what I believe this text is pointing us to is that the disciples could not have bore this information. That their Lord would be brought before the authorities and judged in a secular and a religious court wrongly and condemned and tortured and taken up on a cross to be killed and crucified. And that his dead body would be put into a tomb where bodies rot for days. And then he would, he would rise? What does that mean? What does that look like? This is, this is not the vernacular that we're familiar with in all of the created order. That they couldn't bear it. After all, in the previous chapter here, in chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, Jesus had just given the parable of the seeds in the soil. And the seeds in the soil speak about the word of God that plants into the, the soil of men's hearts. And what happens? When trials come, people run. When hard times come, people run. When the comforts of this world, when, when the comforts of this world are bigger than your convictions, then the comforts seem to win. It's dangerous to have a full picture of the story at the wrong time. Very dangerous to your very soul. That this isn't just a random piece of information that Jesus is picking and saying, mm, I'm going to conceal this for a little while just to prove my point. He's protecting his disciples. This is an ordained concealment for their eternal good. And some people might ask the question then, are you sh how do we know 
that the disciples couldn't bear this information because you might not be convinced. And, and I would say it's a good question. Let's look at Gethsemane. Let's look at the Lord's Supper. The disciples are gathered with Jesus. They're having dinner. They're pretty chummy. We're with you. We're with you to the end. I will never deny you, Jesus. Fast forward a couple hours. Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers show up. And you know what? The disciples bolt. They say, not here, not now. This is not how this is going to go down. This ship is sinking. And I've got a family to take care of. And, and I, I, this is no way. How could we ever survive this? this is, the game is over. And they ran. In, in Mark, it says that, that he ran in such a way that the soldiers went to grab him and he slipped out of his cloak and he, was, he ran away naked, rather being shamed than being associated with Christ. And we see Peter, the very one who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, denying him over and over and over and cursing, I don't know this man. They ran from Jesus. And what, what did the disciples do after the crucifixion? They locked the doors. They're like, we got to protect ourselves because this didn't go down like we thought it would. And we got to regather and be safe. Uh, and they're shaken. The disciples ran. And I think there's a point of caution here. If you were raised in the church as I was, or you're familiar with some of these stories, I know there have been times in my own life where I have asked myself the question, would I have run like the disciples? Surely if I had sat under the teachings of Jesus and I had seen with my eyes the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the proclamation of repentance and the gospel and even the foretelling of his death, if, if, I, had, if I had been there, surely I wouldn't have run. It's a dangerous thought because at the end of the day, there's no room on the cross for you and there's no room on the cross for me because the glory of this story is that Jesus, at the end, stood alone. <laughs> that Jesus stood alone as the faithful son remaining before God. That Jesus stood alone before God and before man where he said, I will bear what you cannot bear, world, disciples. I will take your faithlessness and I will take your shame and I will take your arrogance and I will take your lust and I will take your loneliness and it will kill you, but I will bear it for you. I will bear what you cannot bear because you can't do it and I will die. And then I will defeat death. And I will rise again. And when I rise, with my resurrection comes a revelation that was not previously available. Where things that were once concealed become revealed. That the fullness of this story comes out and your eyes are open in a new way because I have bore your burdens. The good thing about Luke chapter 9 in this story is that it doesn't end here in the concealment. If you have your Bibles, look forward to Luke 24, the last chapter of the telling of the story of Jesus in the book of Luke. Flip there. This is important. Luke chapter 24, verse 4. 
at this point, Jesus has died and he has been buried. And the tomb has been found empty. And the disciples run to see if this is in fact true. Verse 4 says this, while they were perplexed about the empty tomb. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and be crucified on the third day? Verse 8, and they remembered his words. They began connecting the dots. Revelation was happening. Hey guys, remember? He talked about this. He said this was going to happen. And everything that Jesus had said began building upon itself as the, as the circle became complete. And there was a joy and, and, and an, an enlightenment, a revelation that had happened that previously was disallowed. Further along in chapter 24, we see that Jesus on the road to Emmaus begins to show, even through the Old Testament and all the prophets, how it fits together and it points to the very Son of God, Jesus, the crucified, risen one. After the resurrection came the revelation. What was once concealed was now revealed. So we are living in an era where the, we're in the same situation, that there is still a call to faithfulness on us as believers. Now we have the privilege of having the entire Old Testament where we can see the prophecies that have been made. And we have the privilege of seeing the New Testament where we, we see the fulfillments of those prophecies made. And we have the privilege of seeing the entire work of Christ laid out before us in the Gospels. The coming of the sinless one who lived his life perfectly. And he died on that cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And he defeated death and raised himself from the dead. And, and he rose and is now sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But we still live in a time when there are things that are supernaturally concealed from us as believers. There are things that God is withholding from us on purpose for our good. I mean, think about it. We don't know what tomorrow holds. With all of our technology, with all of our planning, with all of our preparation, with all of our savings, with all of our time management, with all of our friends, with all of our resources, we simply don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And it's for our good. It's for our betterment. We don't know the day of our death. We don't know it. It has been supernaturally withheld from us to know. We don't know how our kids are going to do. We don't know how our parents' health is going to hold up. We don't know how our business is going to do, if we're going to remain employed. We don't know. We can try, we can work, we can try to get things lined up. But the, at the end of the day, there's a supernatural withholding of information from us on purpose for our good and for God's glory. And that's hard and there's a mystery there. We don't understand all those things. But the principle that Jesus is teaching his disciples is that he must be the object of our faith. 
And we must rely on what he has chosen to reveal to us so that we can survive in what he has chosen to conceal for us. And that concealment is never forever. That one day all things will be revealed and all things will be made known how God is miraculously weaving all of these things together for our good and his glory. And the call on our life right now is not to know everything. The call on our life right now is not to wallow in fear. The call on our life right now is not to drown in the unknown, but rather to, to glory in the revealed, finished work of Christ. Because that's all we have, and that's what faith is. It's just like the disciples. You have faithlessness? Look to me. Let me validate myself again and then move forward in faith. We, on a Sunday morning are gathered here intentionally. This is not a, a day that uh, somebody just picked. It's not a day where we coordinated our calendars and said, why don't we get together and worship? But this is a holy day. It's our Sabbath. It's a day that is consecrated, meaning it is set aside for a greater purpose. And it is incredibly important and pertinent to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing with our faith and our faithlessness? in the risen Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you resonate more with the crowd where Jesus pronounces you faithless and, and twisted generation. And by twisted there, he means you're living for the wrong things. Things aren't in the right order. That you're living for yourself, you've given it a good try, it's proving itself to not work, and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. You've never looked at him and confessed your sins and say, I am in need, and you are the giver of all that I need, and trusted him to be your savior. And what Jesus is saying in this text is the same thing that he's saying to you now, which is this, let these words sink into your ears. That I've died for you. And I have risen again. Put your faith in me and I will save your soul. And you will be mine for all of eternity. And that can happen today. Maybe, maybe you find yourself a little bit more resonating with the desperate father. And you're at your wit's end. And you, you, you want faith but you just don't even know what that looks like in the situation you're in whether it's your life or your job or your family or the lack thereof. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Let these words sink into your ears that I have died for you and I have risen again. Hold on to me. The concealment is not meant to go away at the moment, but you can trust in me, the revealed one. And maybe you're finding yourself a little bit more like the disciples. You know Christ. You know him to be the Messiah. You've trusted him. But you're at a place in your life where maybe the darkness is just drowning you. And you're afraid. Just like the disciples. Because you don't know the answers. And Jesus is saying... Let these words sink into your ears that I have died for you 
and I have risen again. And I am ready to bear your burdens. Give them to me. Give them to me. That's the call. That's faith. That's the all-important lesson of faith that Jesus is painfully teaching his disciples. And it's the same lesson that we must continue to learn as believers. Now, what we've been doing the last couple weeks, last several weeks, is we have ended our services with kind of a time of benediction and, and song and prayer. And if you feel like the Holy Spirit is poking at you and revealing some things to you, we want to pray with you. We're going to have some leadership up front during the song and after, and would just simply invite you to come up, and we would love to pray with you. The Lord is good. He has risen from the dead. That has been revealed to us, and we are called to trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty, you protect us from what we cannot bear. We thank you for the goodness and the glory of the fulfilled gospel where you are able to bear our burdens. I ask that you would speak to us and continue as we seek to grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.